Welcome to the Voices of Australia podcast, hosted by me, Anthea Hancox, and Lydia Tessima, where the concept and reality of social cohesion is deeply explored. This podcast is brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. Each fortnight, we bring to you an interesting guest who present a new and often unexplained perspective of Australia. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we are recording the podcast, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we pay our respect to all First Nations people. Welcome, everybody, and thank you so much for joining us uh, for our podcast today. We are absolutely delighted to have Dr. Maria Taflaga uh, with us. She is the director of the Australian National University Centre for the Study of Australian Politics and a lecturer in the ANU School of Politics and International Relations. Her research area covers Australian political history and systems and the relationship between the executive and parliament. Recently, she's begun researching the career paths of political elites to better understand how previous related political experience impacts prospective politicians' overall success in elected politics. Maria is also, as many of you would know, the co-host of the Democracy Sausage podcast, which covers Australian politics with Mark Kenny. And we're absolutely delighted to have you with us, Maria. I was wondering, we might just get started by uh, asking you if you might tell us a little bit about your family's history and, uh, and heritage. Oh, yes. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure um, to, to be with you today. Um, so my family background, uh, my family uh, migrated or emigrated to Australia in 1970 as my, my parents. Uh, they were uh, essentially farmers from what is now the former Yugoslavia. So, And they were an ethnic minority within um, uh, what would, would be Serbia today. Um, so they were a sort of Romanian ethnic minority. And they arrived here with two suitcases um, and $700, which is, was actually quite a lot of money then. Um, and ha- their plan was to work here for a few years and then to return home with the profits of their labour to buy heavy machinery so they could farm their 10 hectares of of land uh, in, in Yugoslavia. Um, and thankfully for me, they never returned back um, um, to the old country, as I like to um, um, call it. Um, and I was born here, and 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 so were uh, both my uh, siblings. My sister was 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 just lucky to be born in Australia because my mother was pregnant with her on the boat. Um, and yes, our migration story um, is an important part of our, um, I guess, family um, history. And um, one of the things that I guess um, that motivates um, how I research and teach. Absolutely, and and that it is always fascinating. I I actually read a um, a piece uh, about some research today where there's a a type of research called suitcase um, ethnography, oh, yeah. uh, which is effectively looking at people at suitcases just before they travel and asking them to open them up and then explain why oh, they've wow. chosen the different pieces that they've put in there. It would be fascinating to know what your parents chose to put in their suitcase. That is so when they were interesting, Anthea. Coming, coming so far. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a fascinating uh, area of research, I think. Yeah. But, but in essence, um, Maria, because you were born here, or, or um, the the sense of social cohesion, was that something that you had to um, – that well, certainly that your parents would have had to conceive of, or at least to think about how that how they fitted into this society. Um, was that something that you had to experience as well, or um, I'm I'm interested in how your family has adjusted. Yep. 
Yeah, so that's a really great question. So I I would say that of my siblings, I'm probably the one that was most attuned to this question. And and it's probably partly to do with, I guess, my interests, right? You know, I, I, I did an advanced research career in the end. Um, and and that in large part was due to the fact that, um, you know, my mum my had been denied an opportunity for education because she was she was a girl um and so you know that was really important to her and i and how our migration story differs from a lot of migrants of that way from that part of the the world where education was not always an emphasis so we were sort of unusual in that regard um but you know my siblings are uh, quite a bit older than me like they're generation x and i'm generation y and i think their relationship to the australian state um is therefore a little bit different um, and it's to do with, I guess, government policies. Um, at the time, you know, I think my sister, who was the eldest, was most interested in um, being Australian like everyone else, um, whereas by the time I came along, that conversation around multiculturalism had become slightly more sophisticated um, and, and so the tension was around, I guess, with maintaining um, a cultural identity um, um, at the same time as sort of trying to find your place um, in society. And when I was growing up, it was sort of at the height of um, the Howard years um, and there was the big revival of um, Anzac and um, and all these discussions about core culture and um, non-core culture. Um, and that was something that because it was, I was interested in politics and because it was discussed all the time. Um, yeah, I found that um, I, I sometimes quite a difficult and challenging um, kind of way to try to relate to what it meant to be Australian because I was very obviously not part of the core Anglo culture and I didn't really, and it was, and, you know, I, I do remember quite distinctly, um, you know, Prime Minister Howard sort of said that he didn't like it when people called themselves Italian-Australian or Chinese-Australian, that he wanted everyone to just be Australian. And I remember thinking, but the, the thing is, though, is that the definition of what it means to be Australian, as it is currently presented by political elites, is really very narrow. Like, I don't know anything about Don Bradman. I don't care about cricket. I still don't care about cricket. Like, um, you know, which is a crime in this country. But, um, but you know, but the point is, is that, you know, so the, the, the hooks for me to kind of to grab onto you know they weren't always there and I don't I don't think that um politicians of Mr Howard's generation and persuasion political persuasion I don't think they did that maliciously on all levels I think some of it was simply a lack of imagination um to sort of and and a discomfiture with how much Australia had changed because people Mm. like my parents had shown up and um you know garlic was now readily available in, in most foods like these are all like really kind of trivial and silly kind of answers but they have this sort of um serious dimension and um what was really interesting to me when the prime minister when when the government changed was how the rhetoric from the liberal party um really changed it was almost as if that that set of debates that the Howard government had sort of framed around what it meant to be Australian and belonging and and the debates that, that went around, like the, the, the new generation had come along and the, and the debate had moved on. And so this was sort of settled um, history and, and now we're now having a different set of conversations that are much, um, I guess, uh, they're more pointy in terms of, their, their concepts, right, because we're now talking about race as well as ethnicity. Um, but I think they're still emotionally just as 
difficult because it was so difficult to talk about ethnicity um, and being Anglo-Saxon versus not being Anglo-Saxon. Um, you know, so these ladies, this is an ongoing conversation that Australia has to kind of continue to have and it's become more complex as we have added more and more different groups mm -hmm. to our social milieu and we've come to reckon with our uh, Indigenous history in a more sophisticated way. I'd be really interested to know how <clears throat> how your parents went from planning to return back um, to saying, actually, we're going to stay. What was that journey uh, of, you know, the change of yeah. decision? And, so, and what were their expectations <laughs> when they decided to stay? What were their expectations yeah. for their children? Yeah, okay, that's a great question. So I think, I think in our family, um, some of it was driven by war. So... Um, my parents used to talk about returning back to Serbia uh, up until the Kosovo War, which happened in 1999. And I do recall that my siblings, this was before I was born, went overseas and my parents put them into Serbian school for I don't know how long, but they <laughs> they they do not remember this fondly. Because they didn't really speak the language, right? Because we spoke our ethnic dialect at home, which was Romanian, and, of course, school was in Serbian. Serbian. Um, and one is a Romance language and one is a Slavic language. Like, they're, they're not related. No. Um, so, you know, so, and I do remember, like, I don't really remember the, the Bosnian um, war very much because I was a very small child, but I grew up in a street with lots of Macedonians. Um, and I do remember uh, one day... Um, all the kids just like, like ran up to me and started pointing at me like, you're a Serb, she's a Serb, she's a Serb. Uh -huh. And I remember one of the older children came, came in and was like, no, 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 they're not Serbs, they're Romanians. And then like, it was just, everyone melted away. And so that was all I really remember of the Bosnian war, but the Kosovo war, like, oh, that was like, I was uh, 13, I think at the time. So, you know, that, that occupied all of our family's attention and it was really quite fraught because my parents were more nationalistic and supportive of their country and I was like a teenager who was, you know, like horrified, frankly, um, <laughs> about what was going on um, and it was only after uh, the Kosovo War um, that my parents stopped talking about going back home. So I think the reason for that was like some of it is obvious but also my dad, I think, never felt comfortable in this country in the same way that my mother had. My mother spoke really good English. I think she really liked it here. Um, and I think my my dad, I think, gave up the dream of going back home. And it probably was to do with the war and the realities of life in Serbia. I mean, I went back to Serbia in 2000, which was the year after the war, and the country was under sanctions. And there's nothing to buy you know no. there's just like bootleg soft drinks and <laughs> bootleg everything to be honest empty shelves um uh, people hadn't painted their houses for years so you, you know you could see all the plaster cracking and um like I had a I had a great time I really enjoyed my time there um <clears throat> but you know like someone who was interested in politics even at that age you could kind of see the um yeah the impact on people's lives and their aspirations, you know, because yeah, um, they couldn't leave. Sometimes those specific small things are sort of irrelevant when, when you, what you want is to return to something you loved and a place that, that had so much meaning and, and, yes. and was a place where you had had a, love, a wonderful life pre previous to all of those 
the, the exactly. wars actually occurring. So it, it must have been quite distressing for your father to have to make that decision. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, they still they still talk about Yugoslavia like it's a real place, right? And there's a, there's a meme uh, that kind of goes around, I guess, the sort of ex-Yugoslav community, probably more popular amongst Serbs, but like it's like a, a, a little boy, like where is Yugoslavia? It's like in your heart, right? And I think that is that is yeah. how my parents Absolutely. sort of think about it. And because they weren't Serbs, that identity, that, that larger civic identity of being a South Slav rather than a Serb or a Croat or a Bosnian or a Macedonian because they weren't part of the majority, um, you know, but there was a recognised group being a, a Romanian. Um, I think that that obviously mattered to them because yeah. they still use that language. So once they decided that, okay, we're staying in this country as a result of the war and anything else that informed that decision, did they start to change the way in which they interacted with this country or the way that they um, started to settle with this, like, new mindset that they would be here for, you know, many years? I think in their case, no. Like, I mean, I think their decision actually to to take out citizenship in 1975 was actually probably the important point. I, I think some of their talk about going back was like perhaps a comforting comforting fa- fantasy because, you know, my, my parents were unskilled labour. Like they were part of the last wave of unskilled labour brought in um, by the Australian government, which was sort of pretty much shut off once um, the oil crisis happened and the unemployment went up. So, you know, my, my parents, like my dad built roads. He was a janitor. My mother was pretty much a cleaner for her entire career. Like these are hard jobs. Like, yeah, you know, absolutely. Uh, you know, they had evening jobs. Like you know, we spent most of my time cleaning schools with them. Right. Like, yeah. um, so I wouldn't be surprised if it was um, a sense of sort of like a fantasy to return back to their kind of agrarian lifestyles, which are also hard work. But you know, like made more sense to them and I guess I guess like even though my parents were very time poor they always had an immaculate and amazing vegetable garden like they would produce so much food and this is you know in hindsight looking back at it like you know is clearly this was the thing that kind of kept them sane and there's those kind of like you know people talk about song lines well I guess for them it's sort of like vegetable lines or bean lines (laughs) butter lines you know like that that planting them and at least these you know seeds that they had brought with them in their suitcases absolutely biosecurity laws (laughs) (laughs) they probably wouldn't have understood anyway um um yeah it was kind of crucial to them maintaining their, their sort of um sanity but they did they did participate in Australian um, life insofar as, I guess, in the normal ways that migrants would have, right? Like, um, and it would have been at the intersection of the union movement because they worked uh, in these low-skilled, yeah. high-union representation well, jobs. Marie, let, let's turn a little bit towards the, the sort of the political side of things. You'd mentioned that your your family and yourself were quite were politically aware from a very young age. Um, I'm just wondering what what do you think... Well, how would you go about thinking about political participation from within a very diverse society such as the one that we've got? Is is it simply about voting, or is there a much broader uh, understanding of of political participation? Right. Okay, that's a great question. So, I mean, well, I mean, we have compulsory voting here, yes. so yeah. in some ways, we do sort of doesn't mean ask- everybody does, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Belgians weren't the only 
other countries in like, I guess the Western hemisphere, if to use that language, um, um, that actually has compulsory voting. So we do already ask um, citizens in this country and we don't make it, especially in the past, we didn't make it that difficult to become a citizen because um, we wanted the migrants, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a difference to say Germany who wanted temporary workers and then wanted them to go home. Um, you know, we wanted people to come here and to stay and to settle. Um, and um, and likewise, we have compulsory voting, so we make it really easy for people um, to vote. We put a lot of effort into trying to get people, teach people to vote the like so their vote is valid, which is a lot to ask when um, we have um, so many people whose literacy in English is actually pretty low. Um, you know, even today, uh, that's that still remains um, the case. So, so voting is, I guess, like in Australia, like a, a real baseline. But in other polities, like you know, we don't even ask that. You know, you, you can do literally nothing and still be a sort of um, citizen. Um, and so, yes, so voting is like one of the easiest or the simplest ways that you can have a voice in a system once every three years or four years or five years. Um, there's obviously a lot more to um, like how you can participate in a political regime, you know, through civil society groups, through joining a political party, through direct action, you know, petitions and and, and so on and, and so forth. And um, we do sort of see different patterns, I suppose, between different migrant waves or generations rather, and also migrant waves. Um, and those differences tend to be based off the usual typical demographic demographic markers um, that sort of drives most political participation. So if you are tertiary educated, just more likely to be uh, interested in politics, or if you are educated at all, you are more likely to be interested um, uh, in politics, whether or not you're a migrant or or not. Um, but we do kind of know that um, migrants um, do tend to bring like some socialization from their uh, home countries. Um, but what is, I guess, really kind of interesting is that these effects tend to kind of wash out for their, their children and their children pretty much look like the rest of the, the population sort of distributed between conservative versus progressive um, forces. And this is, I think, a very long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> it's actually quite simple. I'm sorry. Well, I, I get, I get. <laughs> No, no, no. It, I, that was a great answer in actual fact. Yeah. But I think I think that where I'm interested in is how important do you think political participation is, whether it's voting or any of those other examples that you've just given, to a socially cohesive society? Oh, okay. So, you know, if a political system is really responsive to its citizens, like it's um, it has really good deliberative mechanisms and people feel that the system kind of responds to um, what the population wants within reason, then it probably doesn't matter if people aren't like paying that close attention, right? Um, you know, um, like uh, I think as a political scientist, right, like I would say, like, of course you should be interested in politics. It's really important um, that you sort of show up, right? Like the world is made by those who show up. But but I actually, like, you know, in, in cold hard facts, like if, if, the, if the regime does a good job of being responsive, then... 
I guess as a citizenry, we can kind of trust those people that we delegate those political functions to, to kind of do their job because they're engaging with people like me or our communities um, in an effective way. We feel like that they are responsive or understand what it's like to live in this country and, and, and meet and try to ameliorate our, our, our problems, right? Um, and so I that so so this is a roundabout way of saying that you know politics and and how effective and how uh, you know how effective a political regime is and how much people feel they have a stake in the political system and that their voice matters and what they you know their vote matters is really important to social cohesion and broadly speaking in Australia. Australians have had relatively high levels of efficacy. And until very recently, Australians have felt that political elites, you know, governing their interests, you know, that really went into decline um, from 2010 onwards. And I think what was really important about that data was around political trust, political efficacy, the idea that uh, even 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 um, some notions of procedural fairness that the bureaucracy would treat us the same, even those started to decline a little bit, you know. But we saw huge collapses in trust, and we saw no recovery when we had a change of government in 2013. Because usually, what happens is, is you elect a new government, everyone thinks, oh, it's going to be much better now. And slowly, trust declines. We elect a new government, people's faith is restored. But after the 2013 election, we didn't see that recovery. Um, um, and um, and so that is probably a recognition of the fact that the political system seemed like it was grinding gears and couldn't resolve issues, and too many people felt that they were not getting um, uh, enough of a say from, from elites, and that clearly um, applies to, um, well, across the entire um, community that we sort of had this sort of spoils system emerging. Yeah. Is there data that, um, I guess, explores or shows where community is demanding to have a say? Because I imagine that it's just it's not just in the voting itself, but in other things as well. Um, and I also wonder, like, the lack of participation that we do see in voting, is that more so for, from a lack of interest, would you say, or just a lack of education and awareness of how to get to that point of, of voting? Okay, that's great questions. So the first one, um, the census is not directly a measure of, I guess, um, social need as such, but it is really important data that informs um, the kinds of things that people might require, right? So, you know, if you've got like a statistic, like a higher percentage of young families in a local area, like they're going to need more schools or they're going to need more medical services, you know, um, especially if you understand their income brackets, right? Like they're going to have different needs to communities that obviously have more personal, private um, resources. In terms of voting, um, Australia's voter turnout is amazing. Like it's it's usually above 90%. Mm-hmm. And even, the, even when we encounter the informal votes, so people are deliberately voting incorrectly or mistakenly, still very, very high, like over 85%, sometimes over 90%. Like by comparison, um, I struggle to remember a British general election where, um, you know, the government wasn't formed in effect on like a, a majority of a third of the, of the vote, right? So turnout is 60% or lower. And so the majority in the turnout 
you know, is like, it's actually like a third of the population or something like that. So, so at this current election we just had, it's actually the first time that our system has produced a government based on about a third of the vote. But that's actually most, that's actually what typically happens in most other first past the post or this kind of voting system we have, right? Majoritarian voting systems. So, and this is of eligible voters. Yes, yes. And and again, um, Australia, like, is pretty good compared to other countries about not excluding people from the, the role. Like, um, there's always, I mean, I think you think if you're in jail for more than a year, you're excluded. Um, but, for example, in many states in the United States, if you've ever had a felony, oh. you, you are struck for life. Mm-hmm. You know, that's insane, right? Like, um, so... Um, you know, institutionally, I think Australia does quite a good job of trying to include people in this basic sort of thing called voting. Um, and it does it does really impact how parties um, behave and how they campaign, you know. And it's one of the things that I think people who pay attention to politics find so frustrating because, you know, they always feel like the political parties are talking to the lowest common denominator and there's not much difference between them. Well, that's, that's a product of compulsory or one of the products of compulsory voting because they really have to target that median voter, that person right in the middle, and build a coalition. And so um, they can't... Um, I guess, you know, they can't be like the Greens, for example, who are targeting like a much narrower subset of voters and can really match them. So so that's one dimension of um, frustration and I guess like, you know, people feeling that the political system doesn't match their needs. But it it is having a positive effect of effectively forcing a whole cohort of people who, you know, and it's typically poorer people who are less likely to vote because they don't have the resources. They feel like politics is not for them. We know that, um, you know, um, women tend to like report a lower level of political um, interest. So, you know, to be blunt, some of that is driven off the questions we ask. Like we tend to ask if they understand like something about like how the institutional structure works, but we don't really ask them like about Medicare rebates, but women probably know a lot about Medicare rebates and perhaps less about structure of parliament. So it's not that they're not interested in politics necessarily. So, so there's, there's, there's a lot of nuance, I guess, in how we understand and measure um, these concepts. So, so Marie, can I just ask, because I know um, a fair while ago you worked um, with the press gallery in, in Parliament and uh, as a researcher for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. The, mm-hmm. the, what do you think about the role of advertising um, and there were quite there was quite a diversity of advertising in the last election and its influence on the diverse recipients of that advertising and where that might be focused and I think particularly about um, the the uh, United Australia Party versus say the Liberal Party's type advertising or the Greens type advertising um, they, they have different cut throughs with different um, segments of the population. Do you have a, a view about the influence of advertising on political participation and therefore its role in social cohesion? Um, yeah, so we know from um, international evidence that um, negative voting, negative advertising is quite successful in grabbing attention and is quite effective. Um, 
and um, it's something, something to do with like basically our, our psychology. Um, um, and I guess it can have an impact of suppressing voter turnout um, because supporters might not show up to support their party because they don't feel comfortable or they don't like what their party is doing. And that, I suppose, doesn't happen here because we're sort of forced to, to vote. Um, but, um, you know, political political advertising has like, changed dramatically. In, this is not an area of expertise. I'm going to give you a high-level answer. So, <laughs> you know, political, political advertising has changed a lot in the last... Uh, well, even in the last five years, right? Yeah. And it's very difficult for us to really even know um, exactly how parties are advertising to different groups that they micro-target. Um, and, um, and yes, you're absolutely right that, that, that parties are using um, different strategies because they're sort of appealing to different um, persuadable voters from their perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, I I I imagine that Clive Palmer's party is probably engaging in more kind of blanket advertising, and the Labor Party and the Liberal Party who have much better databases about people because they exempt themselves from privacy <laughs> laws um, and are, are, are better equipped to um, understand cohorts better and, and target them through mm. things like Facebook or, or YouTube ads and things like yeah. that. Um, yeah. It, it's a. It, I think it's a really interesting area when it comes to social cohesion. The, Absolutely. The influence, the direct influence in regard to the election, but then the flow-on effect mm. um, after that. Absolutely. Um, I'd be so interested to know about whether or not the 2022 federal election changed Australia's political landscape when it comes to um, diverse representation and. I say this because not only working in sort of council and government spaces and seeing like intentions shift or um, focus shifting, I've I've recognised it myself, but it would be good to understand it from a more formal level. Yeah, so, I mean, yes, I do think the last um, election was um, a bit of a, a watershed um, in terms of, um, I guess, representation out of the um, Anglo-Saxon slash, uh, you know, my parents um kind of like people from Europe basically um, kind of representation. And, um, you know, not only are we seeing a much like a more diverse um, set of candidates coming up, even at the federal level, which is difficult in the sense that there aren't very many spots. They're very competitive. So it, it's, it's essentially parties, particularly the Greens and Labor, um, have clearly done a lot more work in this area to recruit more um, broadly from the community um, because this has been a sustained area of criticism. Um, and I think it was only in 1996 that the parliament managed to reach 20% of um, non-Anglo-Saxon background. And much of that was off the back of uh, the Liberal Party um, recruiting and selecting candidates from non-Anglo-Celtic backgrounds. Um, and But I guess the difference is, is that the coalition has kind of, I guess, remained strong in those cohorts, um, but hasn't necessarily 
been able to recruit uh, more widely um, from, you know, the other waves of migrant communities. And I guess like Dai Lee is a really good example. Like, you know, uh, uh, Mike Baird wanted her to run as a candidate for the Liberal mm-hmm. State, um, uh, New South Wales State um, Party. Um, but that never happened due to basically factional um, infighting. Um, and, uh, and so... I mean, in some ways it's kind of worked out for the Liberals in the sense that it has denied Labor a seat, um, but, it, you know, she would be she would be um, a much more natural fit in their party than in the Labor Party and they have kind of lost the chance for this excellent candidate who is now an independent who is, you know, doesn't doesn't help help their kind of cause in like raw like political number terms but also isn't a voice that is in their party room changing the debates in the in that in that party room you know mm-hmm. or yeah interesting yeah because you know you you mentioned sustained criticism so that that's interesting how it took a while for australia to sort of say hey this is a problem that keeps sort of coming to our forefront but um i guess is that all it took for australia to be able to respond to the lack of diversity in certain spaces and not just in political spaces but even in you know I guess like the ABC, for example, is a political space, but it, that's, that's one space that has made it really um, known that their intention is to welcome more diversity. And I just wonder what else has influenced that? Is it, is it also that Australia as a system has got to a place of being more equipped as a result of certain things or um, is it just the sustained criticism that it took? Oh, that's a really, really good question. I, I think there are multiple things going on there like I mean honestly I was surprised that the parties actually responded um you know at all and I I mean I would sort of be the first to say that um it's not like they couldn't do better um you know like they could like you know I I I, you know I mean we've got to remember that um you know ethnic and racial identity is is one dimension of a person's political um understanding of themselves right you know and for some people um that might be the driving factor that Mm. drives all of their politics and for others it's just taxes right i hate taxes (laughs) i want to pay less of them or whatever right like rishi sunak is a good example of that like he's incredibly wealthy he's i think one of the most wealthy people to ever be in the house of commons um and um and for him you know fiscal policy is like a big part of his political socialization and how he thinks of himself as a politician and how he presents himself. Um, so, so, um, um, but yes, uh, I mean, I guess the other thing is, is that, uh, some of the seats in which, um, you know, like some of the seats in which, uh, non-Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-Celtic candidates were successful, or even non-white candidates, really. Um, you know, they weren't always expected to win those seats, right? So, so um, you know, parties might be getting rewarded um, for being so sensitive and progressive, but actually they just got a bit lucky, right? Which is something you could kind of say for the first really big bump in female representation. Like um, some of those women won against against the odds and no one expected them to win. And then they lost uh, when that government uh, lost in 2007. Um, so so some of it is clearly intentional and, and, and I don't want to discount the, the fact that, that parties have made efforts on women and on ethnic 
uh, and racial uh, minorities, like Labor, for example, has a, a quota for Indigenous uh, representatives as well, which, you know, in certain states, which, you know, whose implementation is a bit patchy, um, um, but, you know, there is an effort there. Um, and the other other kinds of things that I think are kind of important, right? So, so yes, some of it's intentional. Some of it is introducing new rules, right, and systems. Some of it is public responding to public pressure, the need to see to be seen, to be um, representative. But also, like, let's face it, parties um, select candidates in some of these seats because they think they will win, right? Like, or, or they will be good candidates or that'll increase their prospects of, of forming um, governments. Like I don't, um, I have a pretty pessimistic view of parties actually. I, I generally don't think they're doing things out of the, the goodness of their hearts. I think some actors within them, you know, do want to see social change and by changing their party they feel they can change the country, right? But I wouldn't say that was the 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 baseline characteristic of political parties, like, you yeah. know. Um, and others are things, like you mentioned the ABC, well, you know, some of the things that needed to change, I suppose, at the ABC was, like, you used to have to do, like, a grammar test, like a spelling test. Like, I'm not sure if they still do that, but that's a big barrier to to, to entering the ABC if you're from a non-English speaking background to, be, to have to pass a grammar and spelling mm. test, like, you know, um, someone from a non-English speaking background, like, I'm still a terrible speller. Um, my grammar is a lot better now but like you know things like that like the and I think the ABC has kind of recognized that the way it recruited people was effectively exclusionary and that you know um, you do have to sort of change um, systems right you know and we can see this in other institutions like the Treasury for example recognize that even though it changed its system to recruit 50% women um, it wasn't translating into promotion because, you know, after an internal review and an investigation, like they simply were treating male and female candidates really differently, right? Mm -hmm. And you might find that the types of people that join the public service, like I don't know what the diversity is, but, you know, it might be skewed towards certain communities and that might be reflective of like a couple of things, like how these institutions recruit and how they appeal to them, who thinks they should be become a public servant or a politician. And also, I guess, you know, like what's the sort of skill set, social capital of those communities, right? Like in terms of where people in those communities imagine they could actually be or contribute to Australian society. So you have supply and demand yeah. effects is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> Marie, you, you're doing research at the moment into political elites and yeah. sort of the career trajectories of, of different um, people who've, who've made it to wherever it is that their, their end goal is. I think I, I seem to recall somewhere where somebody said up until about the time of Tony Abbott, um, people went into politics because they really did have that community connection, that, that desire to actually make a contribution to community. And then after Tony Abbott, everything sort of changed. I don't know if that's true or not, but um, I'm just wondering whether or not is you, you mentioned before also about systemic change. What what sort of changes do we need to make in the systems or or in the career trajectories of those people that get involved in politics to ensure that there is m more inclusion? Okay, that's a great question. So I would say um, Tony Abbott and his 
you know, government party are not to blame for for this this one. Um, um, they, they're just part of the long process what, in what we would kind of call the the professionalization of of politics, um, where you know increasingly kind of see um, people uh, sort of embark on the career of politics as opposed to embarking on a different career and then deciding they wanted to represent their community and entering politics. And we've always had, you know, professional politicians um, to, you know, to a degree, um, but they, they are sort of a larger and larger cohort. And one of the ways we kind of measure this is by looking at career backgrounds, right? So what they kind of did. And one of the things that we have noticed is that there is increasingly, uh, you know, politicians are much more likely to have some kind of apprenticeship in some kind of politics facilitating role. So they've been a political advisor at the federal or state level. They've belonged to um, a union, um, particularly in a sort of um, like a policy function as opposed to having been a union member in that industry and worked their way up through the union, mm -hmm. right, in that kind of organic kind of process. Um, or they um, represent... Uh, right-wing unions, i.e. industry associations uh, yeah. or, and interest um, groups. So we find that increasingly um, those those sort of are the, the, the kind of um, pathways. And I suppose in terms of inclusivity, um, well, here it really does, I suppose, rely on whether or not parties are thinking at all about how they recruit and what they value in, in candidates. So so we can conclude that, um, and um, if we look at the careers of women, we, we kind of have good empirical evidence that this is true, that parties do value this professionalised experience and that selectors and selectorates value it. And one of the ways we kind of know this is if we look at the Labor Party, they introduced their quota um, to get more women into, into politics. And, and before the quota, um, you know, women politicians such as they were, like they had quite a varied background, but they were much more likely to sort of come out of like the women's group movement or community movements, right, and, and bring like a very different set of experience to politics, which is one of the reasons why they had a hard time getting pre-selected because, you know, selectors yeah. didn't necessarily recognise this. But, you know, the quota hasn't seen more women with that background come into politics. What we've actually seen is more women in politics, but they, they are more professionalised. So they, they, they Labor has done it and Labor women have done a good job of creating organic support networks for women to get the requisite experience valued by parties, right, working in an office, working at this union, working at that industry group. Um, but it's actually kind of just bedded down one way of looking at being a politician. And this is where it can be a real problem for outside groups or relatively new migrant groups who don't have those connections to political parties mm -hmm. to be part of of those networks and participate in those networks and collect those experiences that are deemed to be valuable or desirable by political parties, right? And so it's yeah. sort of self-reinforcing. And so... So have the, uh, have the independents had an influence on that? Have they, is there a chance that they, as independents they are effectively now changing the system again? Um. 
That's a really good question. Like I, I, to a degree, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say that um, the independents, I guess, are a, are a byproduct of, of two big processes. One is just um, like the weakening of, of party discipline in, in Australia, um, which is in part like a product of communication technology. Like, um, you know, politicians now have the ability to communicate on an individual level and that, that weakens party discipline. That said, though, that's a very Australian sort of um I think uh, story, you know, like um, um, if we sort of to look at it more sort of systemically, um, the independents are a product of the Liberal Party sort of, I guess, failing to um, to be responsive to the electorates that they have represented for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And so they have gone elsewhere. And also um, a, I guess a recognition by everyday Australians that the political system is not responding and that the only way to fix it is to get involved, which is something that happened in uh, the late 70s or the 70s and the the early 80s in terms of at least women's participation, like women started running for local council in greater numbers and running for office at the state level and taking those experiences with them and participating um, because there was a recognition that um, institutions needed, you know, women's voices to change them. And I think that's sort of what we're sort of seeing now. So so, um, it's my way of saying that they are a phenomena, the independents are a phenomena sort of, that speak to like long run trends, but also very specific ones. And they aren't necessarily permanent. They might be, that might be very exciting, but (laughs) it it might, you know, it might, the, 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 the institutional rules of our system haven't actually changed. Like it did require an awful lot of resources and special circumstances to bring this about. And the, the rules don't necessarily favor this trend continuing forever. Um, but that doesn't mean that we might all decide we like this <laughs> and that will sort of shift the dial and then the rules will kind of catch up to, yeah. to meet those actors because they occupy power and they can change the rules to suit them to make it easier for them to re- maintain that, that, that position. Yeah, I do, I do think things are uh, – people are figuring out how they can use the system to get the, the better sort of outcomes for society. Yeah. Um, we are coming near the end of the of our session. Uh, so I just wanted to sort of finish off, Maria, on a, a particular question, which is are you optimistic about Australia as a cohesive society when it comes to thinking about it through a political lens? Uh, yeah, broadly speaking, I am. Um, I think that... Um, I guess the thing that does worry me is that I think the political system is doing a really poor job of representing class. Um, Like, um, you know, like really poor people struggle to get representation. Like I think Jackie Lambie, for all her foibles, (laughs) is, is you know, and she's there by accident, right? Mm -hmm. She's a unique voice and one we don't really um, hear much of, you know, um, um, we like the the parliament might be more racially um, diverse, but you know, um, in terms of those career backgrounds, like they tend to look a lot like their colleagues, like the university educated or whatever, right? So they're representing a certain, still representing a certain 
uh, milieu or certain kind of worldview, and they might bring with them like um, experiences from childhood from a very different world or a very different kind of class experience and and you know and politicians will talk about that like Tanya Plibersek does that all the time she talks about her her parents who kind of have similar backgrounds to mine right you know plumber cleaner that kind of thing <laughs> yeah. um but she doesn't live that life I don't live that life you know mm-hmm. um I know that cleaning is a crap job and it certainly motivated me to study so I wouldn't have to keep cleaning but I don't live as a cleaner I don't live with that precarity our political system um is 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 doing a better job of representing people from different backgrounds but it's actually not addressing um those really difficult and systemic forms of social exclusion which relate to a fundamental lack of resources or an ability to translate the australian fair go and i that's the bit that that worries me that our social safety net our politicians might be increasingly disconnected for why that social safety net is so important. They could see, a, you know, uh, like the child of two migrants with two suitcases uh, who didn't really speak any English to have a daughter who in one generation has a, a PhD. Like I worry yeah. that that we will, we will lose um, that ability because we will – no longer have a political class that at least remembers what it was like to grow up in those circumstances, even though they don't live those lives now, i.e. Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister, Um, or just someone like Jackie Lambie, who until she became an MP was basically living that life. Yes, exactly. And I I think that, I think, yes, it is an incredibly important point and and I think one that's worth our audience absolutely considering how we all might play a part in this political system to ensure that everybody has a voice. So, Maria, thank you very, very much for spending this time with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, uh, and we wish you very best of luck. And we, uh, we aspire to be as good as democracy sausage in the end. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That's it. My pleasure, and I'm sure you will. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Maria. This podcast was brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. This podcast is produced by Faisal Farah with sound design and mixing by John Bigelow. Original music is by Official Steno. You can find all our publications on our website at scanlaninstitute.org.au. Please subscribe to be the first to receive our next fortnightly edition.